scripture this evening. You're reading Zechariah 14, verses 1 to 9. And then I'll be reading our passage for this evening, Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 21. Zechariah 14 and Revelation chapter 19. Hear now God's word from Zechariah 14. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azel. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come, and all the saints with you. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. Turn now to... Revelation 19, as we pick up where we left off, having looked last time at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we're looking really at the same events from another angle, another perspective, the return of our King, verses 11 to 21. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fight, fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come, and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may 
Eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured. And with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. But all the birds were filled with their flesh. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Please be seated as we pray. Oh, gracious God and Father, we thank you and praise you and glorify your name for the great hope that we have set forth for us not only in this portion of your word, but in so many places that our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, will come again on clouds of glory, will come again like a, a warrior on a horse, will come again to receive his bride to himself and to execute vengeance on all those who do not know him and who have hated him throughout history. We pray, O Lord, that you would give us understanding We pray, O Lord, that you would increase our hope. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us not only to look forward to the day of our King's return, but to live this day and every day in the light of that hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Children, if I were to ask you, who is your hero, what would you say? Who is your hero? Would it be some great figure from history? Maybe a figure from church history. One of my great heroes from church history is John Newton, a man that God converted while he was a slave trader. And it was used by God as a minister of the gospel and even as as an influence and ultimately ending the slave trade throughout the British Empire. Perhaps it would be someone that you know someone who's alive right now. Perhaps many of you would say your daddy or your mama is your hero. There's one thing that we know to be true about all of our heroes. They teach us what courage looks like. They teach us how to face our fears, how to do the right thing. At least that's the kind of heroes that we should be looking to. Oftentimes, that's not the kind of heroes that Hollywood would have us looking to the kind of heroes that teach us to do the right thing. But they also teach us, and this is perhaps even more important than all of those things, they teach us that even the best of men and women are sinners at best. And every human hero, as heroic as they might be, can only give us a very, very dim picture of true heroism. The kind of heroism set before us in the sinless life and the sinless death of our Lord Jesus Christ, who went to the cross like a mighty warrior and who is coming again in the same way. 
The Gospels give us a picture of the heroism of Christ as the humble Savior riding into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. You remember that? Who was, rege- who was recognized even then as the king of Israel because it was the kings of Israel who would ride on donkeys into Jerusalem. That was the animal that the kings of Israel were called to ride on. But who was rejected when he revealed himself to be a king who would not allow himself to be limited by human expectations of what the king of Israel ought to be. But here tonight we come to the revelation of Jesus Christ as the exalted King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, this is the book of the revelation. And the whole book is the revelation of the person of Jesus Christ, who he is right now. This is who he is right now. He's not going to become King of kings. He's not going to become Lord of lords. He is King of kings, and he is Lord of Lords, but this is the final revelation in history of who we know him to be. You see, now he is revealed to be a king glorious in majesty and power and holiness. And again, we will see that he will be rejected and he will be despised by the world. But this time, he will be rejected and despised Not because he comes to suffer the judgment and the condemnation of the world, but instead he will be rejected because he comes to judge and to condemn the world in righteousness. It's a picture, this picture of Christ that is before us tonight. It's not the picture of Jesus meek and mild, though Jesus is by nature meek and mild. But this too, is who Jesus is. It's a picture that we need every bit as much as the picture of Jesus in his humiliation, praying for his enemies from the cross, crying out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We need this picture, too, because it assures us that Jesus is not only the Lamb who was slain for the sins of the world, but the one who has prevailed to open the seals of God's decree and to bring history to its appointed end, to open the seals and to save his people not only from their sins but from the oppression and the ungodliness and the persecuting spirit of this present world. We need this picture. We need this picture because it assures us that our Savior The Lord Jesus Christ, meek and mild, is also our Lord, that he is the one who is faithful and true, and that he will come again in glory to deliver us and to defeat defeat all his enemies and ours in order to fulfill what God has said in his word. So that's what we want to see tonight as we consider three things from this passage. First, the king's glory. Second, the king's victory, and then we'll look at some lessons for us that we want to draw from this passage. The king's glory, the king's victory, and then some lessons for us. Let's look first at the king's glory in verses 11 to 16. Last time we looked at verses 1 to 10, and as we did, we considered the consummation of history 
as it relates to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, we looked at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We saw how from the viewpoint of the church, the bride of Christ, that all of history is moving toward this glorious revelation of the union of Christ with his bride in the fullest possible sense. We're united to Christ right now. But this is the revelation, this marriage supper of the Lamb that we looked at last time, the revelation of the union of Christ with his people in the fullest possible sense. We saw how uh, John sees this in the vision of the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you're in Christ, you're right now united to Christ by faith, inseparably joined to him by that invisible spiritual bond of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. You're, you're in Christ. And what does that mean? It means that you're justified. There's no condemnation. Your sins are forever taken away. You have peace with God. What a wonderful thing it is to have peace with God. You're adopted. It means that you're a child of God in Christ and a fellow heir with Christ of the heavenly life of the world to come. What he has inherited already is yours in him. You are a child of God. You're being sanctified, meaning you're powerfully, supernaturally, by the grace of God, being transformed and renewed in the whole redeemed humanity, in your whole redeemed humanity into the image of Christ. You're dying more and more to sin. And more and more you are being made alive in the righteousness of Christ. It's all a supernatural work of God, something that you cannot do in yourself. And what all of that means is that you are, if you are in union with Christ right now in this life, you are a, you are a partaker of the hope of glory. That's why Christ is called the one who dwells in us, the hope of glory. It's what it means to be in Christ. What we saw last time is that this is just the beginning. This is just a foretaste this is just a foretaste of what it means to be in union with Christ. All of those things, what we call the benefits of our redemption. Children, if you're learning your, your catechism, you already know what I'm talking about. That language of the benefits of our redemption, the benefits that we have, justification, adoption, sanctification, the hope of glory. It's all there. We have it already right now. It's a present possession of the believer who is in union with Christ. But you see, the marriage supper of the Lamb, that will be the full unveiling, the full revelation of all that's been promised to us. So that what we have only seen in this life by faith, we will see face to face in full, heavenly, high definition. So now we turn our attention this evening to the very same events that we looked at last time, but this time not as they relate directly to the child of God. They do re these, these events do relate directly to the child of God, but we're looking at them from a different perspective. To put it another way, the angle of the lens has changed. Think of it this way. What happens if you're taking a picture and you're, you pull out your phone, you want to take a picture. You've got two main options, don't you? You've got a camera that looks out and you've got a camera facing back, facing you. And you can use one of those two options. You can touch that little circular arrow icon. You can flip the camera so that the focus is either on whatever's outside or whatever's facing back, the front of your phone. 
Well, see, last time the picture was more of a selfie, if I can use that language without trivializing it. It's more of a selfie. We, we saw how the return of Christ will look for the bride of Christ, the church of Christ, as he comes to receive her as his bride. But this time, we're turning the camera around in, in a certain sense. And we're seeing events as they will appear from another angle, from another perspective. And what John sees here, what we have here, which is written for our comfort as we wait and as we wait to see these things with our own eyes, what John sees here is the glory of God in his son Jesus Christ, who has been reigning since the resurrection. It's not as if he hasn't been this all along. But John sees the glory of God in his son Jesus Christ, who has reigned since the resurrection, who has been on the throne since the resurrection, having been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He received that at the time of the resurrection. He's been Lord of lords. He's been King of kings. But now it's revealed so that the whole world sees who he is. So we have it revealed to us in four ways. First, first we want to see the, the glory of the king's appearance, verses 11 to 12. Look with me there. I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. Sometimes the return of Christ in the scriptures, in the New Testament, is called the perusia. That's a Greek word that means appearance or the appearing of Christ in glory. For example, believers are called to keep the commandment of Christ as revealed in the scriptures, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 14 to 16, until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing. It's that word perusia which he will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has, get this, immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. This is just one example in the scriptures of how this word is used. There are many others. At the coming of Christ in glory, he will appear. He will appear to the whole world to be what you and I already know him to be. You see, this isn't a mystery to us. He will appear as what we already know him to be by faith. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth and the presidents of the earth, whether they know it, whether they confess it or not. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is king of kings and lord of lords. If he's king of kings, he's certainly king of presidents as well. We know all this by faith. But the day is coming when what can only be seen by the eye of faith right now will be made publicly and visibly known to all. He's going to come like the lightning flashes from the east to the west. And it's going to be public and every eye will see. This is what John sees here beginning in verse 11. He sees the opening of heaven. Now back in Revelation chapter 4, you remember, he saw a door opened up into heaven and he was able to see into the heavenly throne room and he was able to see that the lamb slain 
was the one who was seated with God on the throne. Now he sees heaven itself open up. There's a rending of the heavens, you might say. And the one who set aside the visible manifestation of his glory in his first appearance, in his humiliation, will appear in the full weight and radiance of the glory of the Son of God, of God the Son. He's pictured here as riding forth on a white horse, which was an animal of war in the ancient world. You see, Israel's kings were not to be warlike. That's why they rode on donkeys rather than on horses. But he comes, when he comes, he comes as a man of war. He comes as the divine warrior of the Old Testament, as the commander of the armies of the Lord that Joshua saw. I'm sure you remember that back in chapter 6, we saw that Christ is the lamb slain who sits with God on the throne and who has prevailed to open the seals of God's decree for history. And what's the first thing that happens when the first seal is opened? A white horse goes forth conquering and to conquer. There's a rider on that horse. But Christ is the one who sends the horse and the rider into the world to execute the judgments that come forth throughout the rest of the chapter, chapter 6. You see, Christ is the one who is in control. Christ is the one who has all power and all authority, the one who has prevailed. And at the end of history, Christ, the one who sent forth the horses and the horsemen of the apocalypse back in chapter 6, along with all of those successive judgments and all the judgments that we've read about so far, now he comes riding a white horse to execute the final judgment against the enemies of God. He's depicted as he was back in Revelation chapter 1. You remember that? He had eyes like a flame of fire. John saw him as one with eyes that, that penetrate with the fiery gaze of omniscience because he sees things as they really are. He knows the secret thoughts and intents of your heart, of my heart, children of your hearts. He knows all things because he is God. He sees things as they really are, and his eyes are like a flame of fire because he is determined in the proper time to take holy vengeance. Vengeance belongs to the Lord on those who have persecuted his bride, the church. If a husband is jealous for his bride, how much more the king of kings for his bride. He has many crowns on his head, many crowns on his head, which is meant to show his power and his authority, unlike the dragon and the beast, who had a limited number, you remember, seven and ten, a limited number of crowns on the head of the dragon and the beast who, who took to themselves all power and all authority, who, had, who made false claims of having universal power and authority. He has many crowns demonstrating that his power and his authority are truly eternal and truly universal. You see, the scriptures are setting forth a contrast between this one and the counterfeit beast, the counterfeit king. And so we see, we see here the glory of the king's appearance. Second, 
Second, we want to notice the glory of the king's name, verses 12 to 13. The glory of the king's name. And in those verses, we're told that the king had a name written that no one knew except himself. I've said this many times, but some are here who haven't been here all along, so I'll say it again, that we don't read the book of Revelation as... Uh, as if we had the Bible in one hand and a newspaper or an internet web page in the other. We read the Bible with the Old Testament in one hand and the New Testament in the other. And we put the two together and we come to an understanding of what God is saying in His Word. You see, we compare Scripture with Scripture. That's what we've been trying to do all along. And in the Old Testament... The high priest had the name of God written on a plate that was attached to the turban that he wore so that on his forehead it said, Holiness to Yahweh, Holiness to the Lord. The name of God was on the forehead of the high priest as he stood before God to make atonement for Israel's sins and, in the Old Testament, for his own sins as well. The name and the robe dipped in blood, tell us that this is not just a king. This is a priest king. This is not just a king. This is a priest king. His garments are dipped in blood, verse 13. On the one hand, the blood is the blood of his enemies. But not just that. It's the blood of sacrifice and of atonement for the sins of his people. You can see the blood from two different perspectives, you see. He's the one who sheds the blood of his enemies. And he's the one whose own blood was shed for those who were the enemies of God and who were made friends of God through the shedding of that blood. That's you and me. The name he bears is a name that is in one sense unknown to any except the king himself. And what this seems to mean, I would think, is that Christ as God, because he's the God-man, Christ as God can't be exhaustively known to any creature. We cannot know him as he is in his divine nature, except so much as he reveals himself to us, as God reveals himself to us through his Christ. But on the other hand... We're told that he's called faithful and true, verse 11. We're told that he's called the Word of God, verse 13. We're told that he's called Lord of Lords and King of Kings, verse 16. And so what we see here is that Christ is both known and unknown. He's known to the believer as the faithful witness who came to bear witness to himself as the truth, capital T. And what that means is that the saints, you and I, can die in faith knowing that when we die bearing witness to him, the one who is the resurrection and the life, the one who is the very incarnation of the faithfulness and truth of God, we die unto him. We die because we die in him. Furthermore, he's the word of God. He's the word of God, the logos. That's how John describes Christ at the very beginning of his gospel. Same John wrote this letter Uh, this epistle of the Revelation. He's the Word of God. He's the revelation of the Father's truth and love in our human flesh. If you want to know the heart of God, 
you look to Christ. If you want to know who God is, you look to Christ. If you want to know the character of God, you look to Christ. God has revealed himself in our humanity in Jesus Christ. And so as such, we come to him not merely by believing a set of doctrinal propositions. We do believe doctrinal propositions. You cannot be saved without believing doctrinal propositions. You must believe doctrinal propositions. But you must also come to Christ as a person to be received and loved and followed. Finally, he's known to us as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the ruler of the kings of the earth. And so the believer knows the name of God in a way that the world cannot know it because the believer knows the name of God, the name of Christ, that name which is being embossed upon our hearts. We know that name by faith. We know that name because he has given us that knowledge. Now, that doesn't mean we walk around strutting like a peacock because we're proud that we know something that others don't know. Sometimes, I won't name anyone, but sometimes there are little people in my household who are older than other little people in my household and think that because they know more things than the other little people in the household, that they are up here and the other one is down here. That's not how we relate to others as the people of God. Rather, what we know, we know by the grace of God and only by the grace of God. And so we are humbled by the knowledge that God himself has given to us in Christ. The believer knows the name of God in a way that the world cannot know because the believer knows it by grace and through faith. We love a risen and reigning, but a yet unseen Christ. Yet one day, every eye shall see and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, whether willingly or unwillingly, such is the glory of Christ's name. Third, we want to notice the glory of the king's army, verse 14. The glory of the king's army. He doesn't come alone. We read in Zechariah 14 that when he comes, he comes with his saints. He's pictured as coming with all the holy angels, but especially with his holy ones, the saints. He comes with the armies of the living God following him. He comes with a heavenly army. They're called here the armies in heaven, which seems to mean the armies of the redeemed who are already in heaven. There will be those who are alive at the time of Christ's coming. And there will be those who have already died and gone on. These are the ones who come with Christ. It's a, it's a holy army. Not only is it a heavenly army, but it's a holy army because to be in heaven is to be made holy by God himself. And so you'll remember in chapter 6 that the martyrs in heaven, the ones who cried out, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long? How long will it be? Well, each one of those martyrs were given a white robe, a white robe of righteousness, and told to rest a little while longer until the full number of the redeemed came in. Now the cavalry, the cavalry of the redeemed rides forth from heaven, following the Lamb wherever 
he goes. You see, that's the description of the believer, one who follows the Lamb wherever he goes. And you see something quite beautiful and comforting in all of this. Those who have suffered for the name of Christ, those who have shed their blood in the service of Christ, those who have carried their crosses for Christ, who have denied themselves for Christ, they now ride into battle with Christ to participate in his judgment of the world. The world which hated them because it hated Christ. This is the glory of the king's army. They participate in that final work of Christ in this world, the judgment of the world. Finally, we want to see the glory of the king's power, verses 15 and 16. Notice first the instrument of his power in verse 15. We're told that out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. It's exactly how Christ is presented in Revelation 1, verse 16, and again in chapter 2, verse 12. In chapter 2, verse 16, he is said to fight against his enemies. How? With the sword of his mouth. The one who spoke the universe into existence. The one who came as a humble lamb. That one now comes to judge his enemies as the living word of God. And so, his power is sovereign, supernatural power. But notice also the extent of his power. Verse 15. By his power, the king strikes the nations with the sword. The nations. This is power inconceivable in its scope. Now, remember, the beast seeks to cause the nations to follow him. The beast seeks to counterfeit the true king and the true kingdom. But this power is power unimaginable in comparison to the, to the power of the beast. Consider for, the, for a moment the power of a single aircraft carrier. We see these often, don't we? I think of it as I drive across the Hampton Roads Bridge Tunnel. And sometimes I'll see three, four, I've even seen five super carriers in port at one time. And, and I, I'm always astonished when I see this. I'm thinking this is power like the ancient world could have never even considered or imagined. I think about the devastation that just one of those carriers could do to a nation. Just one of those carriers, and most nations don't even have a single carrier at all. How a nation like the United States of America is able to project its power around the world with these enormous floating fortresses. But you see, now here in Revelation 19, we see that the nations are just a drop in the bucket. And that even the greatest superpowers that the world has ever known or will know are nothing and less than nothing before the power of the Son of God. You see, that's what Scripture wants us to see. By the sword of his mouth, he strikes the nations and will rule them with a rod of iron. Something of this is already taking place. Even now, as the gospel goes forth and as his enemies are made his friends through the power of his word and by the demonstration of his spirit, that's the power of God at work. To take a human heart, 
that is shaking its fist in rebellion against God and to break that heart in such a way that that heart joyfully serves the king in this life. But you see, this is the end. And this is the time when the whole earth will assemble itself together with all of its combined power and will find that all of its combined power is nothing before Almighty God. The nations are like grapes being crushed underfoot in the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Which brings us to the ultimacy of the king's power. That's there also in verse 16. The ultimacy of the king's power. There's no power like it in heaven or on earth. That is our comfort, dear brother or sister in Christ. There's no power like this. And this power, all of it, all of the omnipotence of God in Christ is being exercised for your salvation. That's the picture. That's what we need to see. The king himself is the revelation of the power of God, not just the love of God, but the power and the glory and even the wrath of God. The king is the revelation of God. And he comes, Christ comes at the height of man's self-exaltation, at the height of man's arrogance. You think it's at its height right now? Perhaps not even close. It comes at the height of man's self-exaltation, just when man thinks that he has achieved his goal of a worldwide kingdom with man, not God, as it, at its head. Just at that moment, the risen Christ appears from heaven and brings Babylon down with just the breath of his mouth. Almighty power. And it's in that moment that Christ will reveal to the whole world that his saints, what his saints have known all along by faith, that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And he can do what he says he will do. Second, the king's victory. Verses 17 to 21. Here in verses 17 and 18, John hears the king's victory proclaimed. John sees an angel standing in the sun, an angel who cries out with a loud voice and calls the birds of heaven to this gruesome and grisly feast. A feast consisting of the flesh of men. Now, if you know your Bible well, that picture is something that should not be foreign to you. You have to keep in mind, again, that Old Testament background. This is, this, the background to this vision is Ezekiel's vision of the end-time destruction of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Gog and Magog represent in Old Testament language all the nations that will come against the people of God at the time of the end. And you see that already, or you see that again in chapter 20, that where John actually uses that language of Gog and Magog. The destruction of Israel's enemies is so devastating and so complete that no one is left to bury the corpses of the dead. Look with me at what God says to the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 39, verses 17 to 20. And as for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, 
Speak to every sort of bird and to every beast of the field. Assemble yourselves and come. Gather together from all sides to my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you, a great sacrificial meal on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty, drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of ram and lambs, of goats and bulls, all of them, fatlings of Bashan. You shall eat fat till you are full and drink blood till you are drunk at my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you. You shall be filled at my table with horses and riders, with mighty men and with all the men of war, says the Lord God. That's the background. That's the picture that we need to have in our minds. And so now remember, Ezekiel's vision is presenting the same events that John is seeing. And, and he'll go on to, to present the same events that John will later present as we see the glory of the new Jerusalem and the new creation. Well, Ezekiel does the same thing at the end of his vision where he presents a new temple, a temple unlike anything ever seen in the Old Testament. And you see there's this parallel between Ezekiel's vision and John's vision. They're describing the same things. And what we need to have in mind is that in the language of the book of Revelation, Gog and Magog are the beast, the false prophet, and their armies, the nations that come against the church and the Lamb. Christ is the one who defeats and destroys them. The one who rules the nations with that rod of iron. And you see in the Old Testament, for bodies to be left for the birds and wild beasts to devour is one of the most horrifying, devastating, and shameful kinds of defeats imaginable. The judgment is so complete, so overwhelming, that a proper burial is not even possible. That's the picture. It's the most extreme form of judgment. It's why, for example, the men of Jabesh-Gilead, you remember the story, children, they risked their lives to recover Saul's body when the Philistines had burned it and hung it on the wall of one of their cities. They risked their lives. Why? Because this is the most shameful thing imaginable. The most horrifying thing that can happen to be so defeated that you can't even have a proper burial. This is how the Bible presents the judgment of the enemies of God when Christ returns. And there's a contrast here. There are two feasts, two suppers, two meals. One is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the other this hideous feast of vultures and birds and beasts of prey on the flesh of those who dared in their arrogance to make war against the Lamb of God. It's crucial that we see how all of this is simply the announcement of the king's victory by the angel in John's vision. The whole world of unbelief is being put on notice, and this is hundreds of years in advance of the events of what will most certainly happen to those who defy the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is still time right now. If you are in rebellion against the living God, there is still time right now to turn from your rebellion and kiss the Son, to turn to Him in faith, to cry out to Him, to break that rebellion in your heart and to make you a new creature in Christ. 
This is just the announcement of what will come. What a shocking picture, a picture that should make us pause for a moment and search our hearts. Two great feasts that will take place at the time of the end. I will be at one of them. Which one will it be? Will I be at the wedding feast of the Lamb, clothed in a righteousness that is not my own, and delighting in eternal union and communion with God through His Son, Jesus Christ? Or will the birds of the air and the wild beast fight against one another to feed on my rotting flesh? And even worse than that, will I be cast into the lake of fire forever where there's conscious torment eternally? Verses 19 and 21, we see the king's victory portrayed. What was promised and prophesied is now pictured in the vivid symbolism of of John's vision. And the scene rewinds us back to the war that we've already seen, that war, that battle of Armageddon that we saw back in chapter 16, the only place in the Bible that even uses that language of 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 the battle of Armageddon. And, and what's interesting about this, I don't know if I pointed this out when, when, I, when we came to it last time or when we came to it back then in chapter 16, but what's interesting, what's so crucial for us to see is that here and in chapter 16, verse 14, and then again in Revelation 20, verse 8, in the Greek, in the original language, the definite article is used each time before the word war, the war, not just war. The war, a singular war. In all, in all three verses, they're referring to one event, to the war, or we might say the real war, to end all wars. This is the same war that we heard of back in chapter 11. You need, to, you need to see that each one of these mentions of this war, it's talking about the same thing. If you don't see that, you'll fall into the trap of dispensationalism. You have to see that each one of these mentions refers to the same events. And what we've seen here all along is that the book of Revelation is presenting the same events in different ways, using different images, different descriptions, but referring to the same final scenes of history, the judgment of the world, the whole world, by the God-man, Jesus Christ, where he displays his, his glory, where he displays the wrath of God, the final wrath of God against his enemies which is the salvation of his bride. The beast and all the kings of the earth and all mankind from the least to the greatest are gathered together to make war against Christ and against his church. They are gathered. It's a passive. We're not told that they gather, but that they are gathered. And from all that we've seen so far, it's confirmed when you read through Ezekiel 38 and 39. On the one hand, they're gathered by Satan, by the dragon, but ultimately it's God who gathers them. God who gathers them. It becomes so clear in chapter 20 and verses 7 to 8 where Satan goes out to deceive the nations, the nations who are identified as Gog and Magog of Ezekiel, but only after Satan is released from his prison. Who releases him? God himself. The prison where he has been bound for a thousand years. He's released for a short time, a little while, a, a short season also said to be 42 months, a time and times and time, uh, a time uh, and half a time. And during that time, during that short season, and thanks be to God that it will be a short season for the sake of the people of God, 
But that short season, during that time, he will gather the nations to the great war, the war of wars, capital T-H-E, war. The war that we've already seen is not Satan's war. It's described back in chapter 16 as the battle of that great day of God Almighty. The beast and the false prophet representing the world's anti-Christian political systems, ultimately the global kingdom of the last days, and the false prophet representing all the world's philosophical and religious systems, they're cast alive into the lake of fire. And all those who followed and worshipped the beast and took his mark are judged by Christ himself. And that's emphasized. He himself, it's said twice, he himself will judge because he is the great judge of the nations. They will be judged by Christ himself and they will suffer what will be called in chapter 20, the horror of the second death, a death that the people of God will not face. So much for the portrayal of Christ, of, of the king's victory. Let's turn our attention finally to some lessons for us. What lessons can we learn? from this vision of the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, we need to remember the purpose of the book of Revelation. We've, we've come to this again and again. What's the purpose? It's a book not meant to terrify us. It's a book meant to comfort us, to comfort us with the hope of the gospel. What is our testimony of Jesus? Our testimony of Jesus is that he's a risen and reigning Savior right now. And if that's true, then he's most certainly also a returning Savior. He will return. He is faithful and true. He will do all that He has said that He will do and he, and he's, all that He's promised to do. And so let's draw out three simple lessons from this wonderfully encouraging passage. The first lesson is that Christ's return, the King's return, is certain. You and I don't know the day or the hour of His return. And it's good that we don't. God hasn't revealed that. And we shouldn't pry into things that are not revealed to us. But we do know that he's coming again. That is certain. And we know it because he's promised that he will come again for those who have died in him and for those who will be alive at his return. We know it also because he cannot allow the prayer of the martyrs for their blood to be avenged to go unanswered. We've seen that. He can't allow that prayer to go unanswered. The very nature of God requires that God will one day manifest His justice and His wrath. This is how it's possible for us to wait on the Lord, brothers and sisters, to patiently endure the hostility, even the persecution of this world in the present, and to trust that vengeance is the Lord's. He will repay. Christ is coming again. His reward is with him. Don't let your heart be troubled. Don't be afraid. When you look around and you see the nations raging, don't take things into your own hands. Look up with eager anticipation and hope. Your salvation is even nearer than when you first believed. The second lesson is that the king's victory is guaranteed. How is it guaranteed? It's guaranteed by the king's word. That's obvious. 
But that's not all. It's guaranteed by the king's power. Who can stand? That was the great refrain lifted up by the world as the beast ascended from the sea in chapter 13. You remember, who can stand against this beast? Who can stand against the power of this world when it comes against the church with its great power and its worldly might? Who can stand? Perhaps some of you are asking that question. How can I stand against the world as it comes with its demands? How can I stand? But the book of Revelation, if we rightly understand its message, teaches us, the children of God, to ask a different question. A question born of faith, a question born not of fear, at least not the fear of man. And that question is this. Who can stand against the Lamb who has prevailed to open the scrolls? Who can stand against the ruler of the kings of the earth? Who can stand against the lion of the tribe of Judah? Who can stand against my Savior? To ask that question is to answer it. The king's victory is guaranteed by the king's power. And because it is, your salvation and mine are guaranteed. Finally, the third lesson, perhaps the most difficult for us, is this. The king's army must wait patiently in the hope of the king's return. His return is certain. His return is guaranteed. He's promised it in his word. He's sealed it to our hearts by his spirit. But we are weak. We are flesh and blood. We are creatures of dust. We have this treasure of the gospel in vessels of clay. We wait for a savior that we cannot see. And the world around us continues its endless assault, seeking to deceive, seeking to demoralize, seeking to discourage, seeking to discredit, seeking to devour, seeking to dehumanize. All of these things are going on all around us every day. Seeking to destroy and distract and diminish what God has said to us in His Word. And the question that we face day after day, week after week, Lord's Day after Lord's Day is this, will I live by faith or will I live by sight and sense? Will I live on the basis of what God has revealed to me in the gospel? Will I trust God in His Word or will I follow the experts and the philosophers and the politicians, and the psychologists, and the seducers, and the deceivers of this present evil age, the journalists, the TikTokers. Who will I follow? By the grace of God, we're called to wage our warfare in this world in the confidence that Christ is coming quickly and that his reward is with him. And our calling is simply to bear faithful witness to him who died and rose again for us. Our passage tonight reminds us that Christ is not one day going to become the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords right now. He's reigning at the right hand of God as the Lamb who sits on the throne. He's been given all power and all authority in heaven and on earth. He reigns in the hearts of His people right now. You look around the church and that's what you see the reign of Christ visibly manifested in the lives of his people. And he will soon come again to exercise all his power, to destroy all his enemies and ours, and to bring in a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. Our calling is not merely to believe this with our hearts, 
but to proclaim it with our words and with our very lives. And even if called upon to do so with our deaths, let us pray. O gracious God and Father, we thank you that we have the promise that our King is coming again. That his coming is certain. That his coming is guaranteed. And that when he comes, he will do all that he has said that he will do. Help us to believe these things and to live as if we do. We pray in Jesus' name.